Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Welcome, friends and listeners. We're back with Hacks on Tap. We are socially isolated but politically opinionated. I'm here sipping my Clorox and mint cocktail on orders of the president. Little little health drink, though I'm I'm, I'm turning a weird sh- shade of green. Axe, how are you? How are things in the bunker? Uh, doing well, man. This is a my bunker is good, and uh, I'm very I feel very fortunate. My family's good, and I, you know why else I feel fortunate? We Dragged our old buddy John Heilman back into the mix here. He of the circus and the recount and about a dozen other entrepreneurial <laughs> media uh, projects. Uh, Heilman, how you doing? I'm doing all right, guys. Uh, you know, getting you know out here on the East Coast in New York, the rest of the country, you guys out in the West, in the Southwest, you guys are like, you know, you, you think you're living in lockdown. It's nothing like how it is out here on the East Coast. And we're all like talking about, are they going to open the schools even in? September, yeah. or are we going to be in lockdown for the next year? It's like it's a whole different reality, but we're fine. Family's healthy and uh, we're living. Yeah, man. Look, Chicago is, has its own set of uh, challenges. And I'm just, you know, I'm aware every minute of every day uh, how hard this is hitting communities and hitting people around the country. Yeah, my uh, dad, who's 85, is locked up in Detroit, and he tells me it's really cutting down on his dating life. But he's he's doing well too. But th- this is a <laughs> this is a grim grim time. It was this Brett Stevens column that basically laid it all out, which I thought was kind of incredible. It's like things like the number of deaths in Westchester County is more than the deaths in Texas altogether. It's that kind of thing. Like New York is just. I mean, we know it's yeah. we've known for a month and a half that New York is ground zero, but the numbers have really piled up now, and you really look at. There is there are two different experiences of this in the country. One is New York, and the rest is the rest of the the rest of America, which does actually raise an interesting political question. As we're in the middle of a campaign, I mean, the Stevens column uh, spoke to this. I mean, I think Donald Trump is in a world of hurt right now. He predicated his campaign on a booming economy. He's going to have a near depression uh, uh, conditions to run in. He um, uh, and and he's looked. You know, he's looked uh, incompetent uh, during this whole episode, and it's very hard to spin. But the one thing that he does do is navigate resentment and surf resentment. And you have to believe that resentment is going to grow at exponential rates here as people are feeling the economic effects of the uh, of this. And you can see him trying to slide over and put himself in a position to take advantage of that, even though it was his own government that propagated the guidelines that were necessary to deal with the virus. It's an interesting equation for Trump because he is the king of grievance politics and his economic pain skyrockets. There's going to be more grievance. On the other hand, it's a lot easier to be the grievance guy on the outside looking in than on the inside defending. I mean, Trump's got to go find an enemy and the virus is so big and rattles people's real lives in a degree that isn't the usual Washington Republic Democrat food fight silliness that, you know, there's no way the buck doesn't in many ways stop with him. And so, uh, you know, I think he's trying to punch his way out of a hefty bag here and he's really having a hard time. I just note that like McConnell last week when he started talking about blue state bailouts. Yes. That to me is very much of a piece with Trump. It rhymes with the with the kind of strategy that I think, David, you're suggesting, which is, you know, that there's there's massive geographic disparities in terms of how this has impacted the country as a health matter versus an economic matter. And 
I thought that 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 McConnell was kind of showing his hand a little bit there by by talking about blue state bailouts, and that's the kind of thing that Trump, I think, you can imagine how he tries to drive that thing, um, the resentment between red and blue states, and you know the reality of the fact that in addition to New York, you know California, Washington State, the, most of the places that have been hit hardest by this have on the health front have been very very deep blue states. Yeah, I think that as if you look at the map of the states that have opened up in the initial o- openings. Uh, the vast majority of them are states that were Trump states. Uh, and so that gives you a feel for that. That said, that alone may not be enough for him. And let's let us uh, listen to what he had to say at his White House briefing yesterday, because there was one bite that really, to me, there were a couple I want to play, but there's one that sort of spoke to several elements of his strategy. So let's let's listen to that. Today, one of your top economic advisors, he said that the U.S. is likely to experience a 20 to 30 percent decline in the GDP in the second quarter, the worst since the Great Depression. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, I don't know, but I can tell you the third and the fourth quarter in particular are going to be, I think, spectacular. We were talking about it with the executives. I think we're going to have a phenomenal third quarter. Nobody, you know, except one country can be held accountable for what happened. Uh, nobody's blaming anybody here. Uh, we're looking at a group of people that should have stopped it at the source. But uh, so what happens in second happens in second. What we are doing is I think we're going to have you're going to see a big rise in the third, but you're going to see a, in, an incredible fourth quarter and you're going to have an incredible next year. I think you're going to have a recovery. Look, I built they were just telling me inside and it's fact I built the greatest economy with the help of 325 million people. I built the greatest economy in the history of the world. And one day, because of something that should have never been allowed to happen, we had to close our country. We had to close our economy. I built it. We had the best employment numbers and the best unemployment numbers for Hispanic American, for African American, for Asian American, for everybody, best stock market numbers. And by the way, the stock market was up very substantially today. And people are seeing a lot of good things. A lot of very smart people investing in the stock market right now. Long clip, but it, it was really revealing because you can see the storyline he's, uh, he's developing here, which is we were doing great. I built this roaring economy. China screwed us, the unscrupulous Chinese, and uh, and now uh, we're you know we're in this position, but we're coming back, and I know how to do it. Right. That's that's one piece of it. So, what say you guys about the efficacy of that of that uh, strategy? Well, what happens if we don't come back? You know, that's the problem. It's Trump. It's always a river of superlatives. It's like assault and battery by yeah. superlative. He's always selling. We're we have to see what happens, but I think this stain has been pretty deep. John? Yeah, I mean look, I you know, there's a couple things to say. I mean, one of them to your point, Mike, is that you know, a world where uh, a third of the airline seats are untaken, where a half of the restaurant tables are unfilled, you know, it's hard uh, from the economic analysts that I listen to which is a pretty wide group. I don't think anybody is ready to sign on to the notion that the economy in the third and fourth quarters of this year is going to be right. like the economy right. of 2019. I also think Trump oversells how good his economy was, but put that aside for a second. I just don't see that comeback as being tenable. And there's going to be a wave of bankruptcies. 
these huge companies, uh, many of these restaurants are never going to come back. A lot of the, the, the businesses, just that recovery that he's forecasting seems to me overblown. And I think if you fall short having sold this massive recovery, that that's going to be one problem. But I do think it's right that, you know, Trump, like every incumbent who is kind of unpopular or struggling, whether it was Barack Obama in his, in his second term, in his first term, or George W. Bush in his first term, they're all trying to make it a choice and then disqualify the opponent, as opposed to allowing it be a referendum. And the only way Trump can make this a choice is to try to make it a choice on who is best equipped to build the recovery and sort of say Joe Biden is is mentally infirm. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, slipping yeah. into senility, and I'm the I'm the guy. I'm the alone can re fix it. That is where he's going. I agree with you guys completely. You know, Trump's uh, problem is that it's easy to spin bullshit when uh, when people aren't living it every day. Uh, and so, uh, and this is what he's done all his life. I've been watching, uh, you may ask why I fill my time this way, but I've been watching this <laughs> Netflix, uh, biographical, uh, series on Trump. And what's striking is how much what he's doing now is so consistent with something, with the things he's always done. Yeah. He's always spun, uh, he's always spun bullshit about how great his businesses are doing and uh you know how people are reacting to him and when he gets challenged he always tries to impeach the media and say that they're biased they don't know what they're talking about and so on these are all go-to plays for trump they just don't work when the entire country is living the reality that you're trying to tell them doesn't exist yeah he's a classic one monkey trick guy in fact i'll make a plug for my friend jack o'donnell's book trumped Jack was a casino executive and wrote a book about working for Trump in Atlantic City. You can get it for a buck on Amazon used, hopefully soon to be a major motion picture, but that's a whole other story. But anyway, Trump was exactly the same in his 30s in Atlantic City, hustling regulators and, and his creditors and everybody else. It's the same playbook. And so he's just going back to the hits. But this thing is, it's so big and he's in the center now. He can't attack because he has some responsibility being allegedly in charge. Um, I mean, you see the struggle they're having because, you know, we've been watching this hilarious folly where they announce, well, we're not going to do the briefings anymore after the president suggested that you, you know, take a good swig of pine saw every day to fend off the virus, <laughs> swallow some Christmas tree lights and everything will be fine. So they wrestle him away from the microphone and that lasts literally a couple of hours. Because it's his heroin, it's his horse. He's got to have it before he's back. So, well, you could see you could see how much it bothered him because yeah. he went tweet crazy over the weekend when he couldn't have his podium. Totally. So he'll never not be able to grab the spotlight in the middle of a crisis, and and we will see him in action failing. That's the fundamental problem. That means even his playbook makes it very very hard to slip the noose. At least I think it is addiction behavior. I mean, it truly is. Yeah. Like, and I think it's it's part of the reason why both the press and his Republican allies always like they, they people don't understand enough about how addiction works because everybody, you know, we've written this, we're like every, we've written this story a hundred times about how Trump finally has seen the error of his ways just for his own self-interest. He's going to change and that Republicans are freaking out. And so they're going to pull him back from his worst behavior. But the reality is that addicts don't behave that way. They, the addicts mm -hmm. goes, doesn't matter how self-destructive the behavior is. The addict is, you know, still going to crawl across broken glass and steal, you know, grandma's, uh, uh, rent money, you know, to to buy that next right. that next dime bag, right? It's just it's just how it is. There's no way to stop and Trump. He's always going to and it. it's always work for me. I wrote a piece yesterday uh, on CNN.com about this, uh, and you guys remember the fable of the scorpion and the frog, the scorpion jumping on the frog's back, asked for a ride. The frog says, "Just don't sting me." 
They go across the stream. The <laughs> scorpion stings him. The frog says, why do you do that? And the scorpion said, it's my nature. Uh, this is Trump's nature, and he cannot change it. But, uh, uh, you know, so, so I don't expect that we're going to see that. But I do expect, given the situation, uh, our, our friend uh, Jonathan Martin uh, uh, sent me a clip this morning about how um, this would be the worst economy. This will be the worst economy that any president will have run in since 1932. Uh, and and no one has uh, survived this before. So he does have to destroy Biden. And John, you uh, you started uh, uh, on this train of thought about one line of attack. So let's listen to this clip from yesterday's press briefing. 2020 election. Yeah. Your uh, likely Democratic opponent, Joe Biden, recently suggested that you were considering changing the, the date uh, of the election, that you might try something like that. Um, that's my first question. The same question. I never even thought of changing the date of the election. Why would I do that? November 3rd. It's a good number. Uh, no, I look forward to that election. And uh, that was just made up propaganda, not by him, but by some of the many people that are working, writing little statements. I see all the time statement made. You say so. Statement made per Joe Biden. Sleepy Joe. He didn't make those statements, but somebody did. But they said he made it. No, uh, let him know. I, I'm not thinking about it at all. Not at all. So there you have it. You know, he's got the Sleepy Joe thing going and the subtext. And he's done this several times every time he gets challenged by something Biden said. And by the way, Biden did say that. It wasn't anybody else. Uh, every time it comes up, he, his new thing is to say, well, he didn't say it. He's not competent enough to say it. Uh, and this is this is a full blown campaign uh, that they are are running. And, um, you know, to me, uh, you put the two together, you know, we've got this economic crisis and uh, I'm Donald Trump strong enough and economically savvy enough to bring us back. Biden doesn't have it. He's uh, his mental acuity, his physical stamina isn't there. Uh, I'm your only choice. I mean, that's uh, that's the argument that he's making. Yeah, and I think this thing about the mental acuity is, is I don't think anybody, largely I think the mainstream press right now and many mainstream political observers don't recognize how vicious at this point this is going to be. It is out there right now as a meme on the right that Biden is senile, that he's, that he's, that he's, he's on the verge of dementia. And I think the Trump campaign is going to drive that thing like, like nobody's business. Um, they're starting already. But by the time we get to November, or October, November, you know, this meme of Biden as a doddering, incompetent, senile, ready for uh, to be institutionalized is going to be a huge part of what Trump's going to do. I, I, you know, and I think there's just enough evidence, not that, Trump, that Biden is any of those things, but they will find every piece of video where he stammers or stutters or has lost his train of thought. There is plenty of that video around and they will make hay with it in a way that was going to be incredibly, I think, incredibly personally vicious. Right. We all know that the key strategy for Trump has to be the change to the subject of the election because the country wants to fire Trump. It's in the data. It's everywhere else. The only sliver of hope that I saw in the last uh, Wall Street Journal NBC poll was on handling the economy. Trump still had an advantage. So if you're Biden, it's pretty simple. Uh, you are going to be called Sleepy Joe the Knucklehead, and there are a ton of those clips there. So you've got to perform really well and knock that thing down with your own flood of information. And you've got to you've got to take away some of Trump's advantage on being perceived uh, as being slightly or somewhat seven points. I think it was better on the economy. So I think when I watch all this, though, 
it's a real temptation for the Trump campaign to grind all this stuff out and organize their 45 percent of the vote really well. Give them 19 reasons to hate Biden. The question is, are they going to move the needle? So every day when I force myself to watch the news cycle and pop the Tylenol, you know, kind of like watching a car wreck, watch Trump in action, I just think, what happened today to move the numbers in the suburbs? Did Trump do anything to get anybody new in the suburbs that he lost in 18 and hasn't got back yet? Because that's most of the election. And I think they're going to need something better than Biden is crazy unless Biden's performance is so bad it amplifies it. Right now, Biden is sequestered in his basement. That's how we see him. We see him in these sitting down and doing uh, interviews and, and, and other things in his basement, while the president, even though he also is sequestered in the White House, we see him at the podium. I mean, crazy ass as some of the stuff may be. You know, if you just turn the sound down and you look at the two guys, the one guy looks like he's energetic. The other guy looks passive. Uh, I know there are people, uh, uh, people I respect who have argued, just sit back and let Trump destroy himself. But when it comes to this narrative uh, that John just laid out, I think the passivity is really, really dangerous. And they have to figure out a way to enliven this thing and give people a sense of energy uh, around uh, Biden, or they run the risk of, of abetting that Trump strategy. I don't think that, that, there's, a, that there's ever been anybody. If, there, if you look at all of the examples of fights that Trump has gotten into in his career and in politics, and just let's focus on just those. Look at 2016. You, know, you look at the, the one race he ran. You look at what happened in that Republican primary. You look at what happened in the general election. and I can't imagine anybody who looks at that and takes the lesson away that there's a way in which passivity and being on defense and, quote, letting Trump self-destruct is the recipe for success. I just don't think it's like you, you, you have to take the fight to Trump. You have to, at minimum, you have to be a strong counterpuncher, but you can't just expect that Trump's going to implode. That, that strategy has, has, has lost for everybody who's ever hoped it would, it would happen. And I would say there's a, lot of, there's a trail of Republicans who thought that would happen. And then there was Hillary Clinton, who wasn't totally passive, but there was still a lot of presumption that somehow Donald Trump would just eventually implode. And we and he's been president for three and a half years because of that. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was a mistake I thought Mitt made uh, running against Obama. Obama's numbers were bad, so we're just sit back and let let Obama go away. And instead, the Obama guys, as David well knows, went out and told a quite a Mitt story of their own. So I, I think the Biden guys have a little time but fundamentally, you know, they, they've won the lottery here. The country wants to fire an incompetent, crazy president. But that is not an excuse to do nothing. It's an excuse to fix the problem and take the vulnerabilities away from Biden and keep Trump back on his heels. And now I feel for him because it's very hard in the current environment to campaign other than being locked in your basement talking to a camera. But they, they've run that string as far as they can. They're not scoring big with it. it, it a changeup has to be coming soon where Biden finds a way to get into the race, prosecute the case, and again, convince the country he's the best guy to restart the economy. And that, that they have the gift of a fairly simple path. They just need to execute it. And that's what we, we haven't seen. Now, let me bring up a new problem they've got because it made the Washington Post today. Uh, there's a woman named Tara Reid who's made a bunch of kind of Brent Kavanaugh type 
accusations about Biden. It's been all over the conservative blogosphere. The Trump guys are flogging it like a slow government mule. And it's now broken into the media. It's an allegation that back in 93 or 92, a woman who briefly worked on Biden's staff, that he inappropriately uh, touched her shoulders. I haven't even gone into the details because these these hard to totally corroborate things to me are are difficult. I felt the same way about Kavanaugh. But now the Dems, or at least Biden, is going to yeah. live that life a little. The allegations are worse than that. I mean, the allegations really go to sexual assault. Yes. Which, which I have to tell you, I mean, this is always so sensitive. And of, of course, everyone recognizes that, that because we, we now know that a lot of women have, have made accusations uh, that were dismissed uh, that turned out to be true. Um, you know, I can only say I, I knew uh, I've known Joe Biden very well for uh, uh, since the 2008 campaign when he joined us and through the years as vice president and so on. Uh, you know, it, it it's completely out of character uh, to me uh, to hear that. But I do recognize uh, the, the threat here. And, you know, it's easy because so many people know Biden who know Biden say this is nuts. Uh and look at look who's on the other side. I mean, a guy who's a, who's been accused of serial sexual abuse and sexual assault. So why, you know, that is a that's a this is a scary line of reasoning. Uh, the you know, Trump lo- would like like nothing better than to drag Biden into his tabloid world here, and um, you know, it's not an easy thing to figure out how to deal with. But this thing is becoming a thing. In yeah, the, that's uh, the point. And it's I not think. just it's it's not just aimed at conservatives. Where it's aimed is that you talked about suburbanites. You know, the strength there is women. Mm-hmm. It's aimed at women. It's aimed at progressives. It's aimed at at young people. And I've heard it from my own students. Uh, and and so they need to figure out how to counteract this and how to deal with this because I think this will fester in a very insidious way. And the more they don't deal with it, the more it becomes amplified. I mean, it is a real thing. First of all, really interesting that the main noise being driven on this right now is by the left and not the right. It's mostly, it's, it's a, to a large extent, the noise is mostly coming from people on the left and, and Sanders people in particular. That's, a, that's just a fact right now. Number two, you have now this, this piece of tape that's come up that has Tara Reid's mother uh, allegedly mm-hmm. having made a call contemporaneously and been on Larry King alluding to the, in the, the situation yeah. um, back in, in about 1995 or 1996. There's a piece of reporting now. The New York Times has, has validated this and done weeks of reporting on it. They published an inconclusive story, but it's in the mainstream press. The Times has covered it. And now there's another contemporaneous witness who, mm-hmm. uh, not witness, but a woman who says that Tara Reid confided with her in real time or close to real time in a fair amount of detail about the things that she alleges. None of that's to say it's true. And I'm with you, David, in the sense that um, the, the accusations that previously in this, in this vein about Joe Biden, that he, you know, touched women's shoulders in a, in a way that made them uncomfortable right, right. or that he was physically too proximate to them and made them uncomfortable. Those things, I think many people who know Joe yeah, Biden, you believe, completely, that. Wait, yeah, I believe you I have believe seen it, that. believe it. But this thing of the notion of a violent physical assault is something that I think many people who know Joe Biden, most people who know Joe Biden would say is is out of character, the Joe Biden they know. But 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 given that just the media coverage that I just described and what the nature of the of the allegations are and the and the witnesses that currently exist or contemporaneous corroborating sources on the record and 
now tape with the mother and a woman who is willing to go on camera. She's done a podcast interview, Tara Reid, already, and I think will be on camera in the not-too-distant future. The, all that I can say about this, there's no doubt this is not going away. And so the Biden campaign has got to have a strategy for it because it's not just going to be a thing that they can say, this is right-wing nuts and, and there's nothing to it, and try to ignore it. That will not work. The reality of it is because of all of this that's bubbling up, he is going to personally be asked about it. And he has to he that answer is going to be very important. What the campaign does to get into those dark spaces on the Internet, uh, in social media is going to be very important. They need a full blown strategy uh, to deal with this. Um, and that's and, tricky for them because they're an old school campaign. And in the Internet era, you can't assume the press will cover it for a week and then it's gone. And because he's a pro-choice Democrat, not a pro-life Republican, he will get easier media treatment than a, than a Kavanaugh did. But it's out there, and it may resonate with some of those younger voters he really needs in addition to, as David said, the suburbs. So I think the only strategy they have, which is painful, is one, to do what David said, they have a very good answer, and two, bring it out, beat it to death, make it the most boring thing in the world so it's been totally litigated and it's not in the way during the close of the campaign in September and October. Now, that's counterintuitive what they want to do, which is have one story, one interview, and say it, declare it over. But you can't declare it over uh, in the world that trades digital information. And you know the Trump people are going to spend, high, you know, 50 million bucks on online ads pushing this thing forever. So you, it's like a wildfire. you got to burn it out. It's your only choice, painful as it is. Speaking of choices, the VP thing is percolating out there. It's been an interesting week. I, I had uh, Stacey Abrams on my uh, Axe Files podcast uh, last week, and she's uh, been openly campaigning uh, for <laughs> shamelessly for the VP slot. She explained on the on the podcast why she uh, felt that she needed to speak up uh, uh, for herself. But um, just I'm interested in what where you guys think this thing is at uh, at this moment. Uh, who's actually in, who's actually out, and and more importantly, what you think he should do as uh, brilliant political thinkers <laughs> that you are. And then I will come in, and if necessary, I will correct you. Yeah. <laughs> John, you first. In all of our careers, the, the all of the rules about how you're supposed to act if you're a potential running mate have apparently been thrown out the window in this cycle because it used to be, you know, you're supposed to be coy and you're supposed to be, you're supposed to deflect the questions. And instead you now have Stacey Abrams and others, you know, just embracing it. But Elizabeth Warren asked about it. She says, yes, I would love it. I would take it. Uh, Val Deming, same thing. Like everybody who's asked about it now is like, if not aggressively campaigning for it, they're, they're very openly uh, suggesting that they want the job. That's a, just a totally different thing. I've never seen it before on either, in either party previously. Um, it's an interesting question about whether, you know, Biden having committed to, to, to pick a woman, um, you know, that obviously, you know, changes the dynamic of it. Um, and I, and I, th I think on a lot of cases, you guys know this better than I do, but because you've been through it with, with candidates who've had to do it, but I've covered a fair number of beep stakes and, and gone back and reconstructed them for books. It's so much a question of head and heart, right? And the reality is for a lot of these candidates, you know, they, people will tell them a million things about how they can win a state or win a demographic or they need to do this and they need to do that. But in the end, it almost always ends up being a heart pick. It almost always ends up being, you know, when it's not, you know, you end up in McCain Palin land, right? So, you know, who's Biden comfortable with? Who does he who does he click with? I can't imagine Joe Biden picking someone who he doesn't feel kind of kinship with and feel like he's very comfortable with on some level. So, 
if I look at the existing ones in the field that seem most likely to me, I think an Amy Klobuchar is a, is is a is a is certainly going to be is on the short list to the extent a short list exists and could, is a very likely pick. I think surprisingly Kamala Harris could be on that list also. David, I'm sure you know Kamala Harris and Bo Biden were incredibly close, and I think that means a lot to the vice president. And obviously, having an African American woman on the ticket uh, is something that, if you're doing the the math, back of the envelope math, is something that that should that does and should matter to them. Um, Gretchen Whitmer has certainly put herself in the conversation because of Michigan and a woman who's sitting there right now with a 66 or 67% approval rating in the state of Michigan is something that they're going to give a hard look to. It feels to me like if I had to say what I thought the very top of the shortlist is, those are the three that I think are on that yeah. shortlist. I'm not saying that's the, they're the only ones they're considering, but those three seem to me, if I had to be a gambler and make a bet, I my money would be kind of split evenly among those three. Well, Biden ain't going to ask me, but I'll, I'll give my somewhat contrarian opinion here. <laughs> if and he any, does, let us know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. I'll really talk about doing the X-Files or maybe <laughs> here. And any angry hate mail should be sent directly to David Axelrod at the Institute of Politics, University <laughs> of Chicago. But here's I the deal. I can't handle that volume of hate mail for you. Yeah, I, I, I ain't here because I ain't no Democrat. I, I don't <laughs> wish him well long term. I want to rebuild the Republican Party. But step one is we got to beat Trump. So how does Biden lose? One, we talked about this. Trump is able to change the subject to Biden is old and crazy or some kind of pervert. Uh, no, number two. Biden gives him a VP he can work with. So I am in the risk-free VP world. And that means no Kamala Harris because Trump is a racist. And I don't want to spend the campaign talking about her position on reparations versus Biden's or other incendiary wedge issues. Now, I know the conventional wisdom argument in the identity politics-driven Democratic elite is, oh, you got to, you got to, you got to. You don't have to. Joe, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, two outstanding Democratic candidates, could not peel a vote off Biden in the African-American community. That's why they had to drop out. They couldn't get alive even in South Carolina. So the idea that Biden has a problem there, I think is all optics, no reality. So eliminate the risk. And I have three candidates, which will sound, one will be a new name. Uh, Obviously, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, she's got a a lot of, a lot of reasons. uh, And I I think she's government oriented, a little liberal for my taste, but she's, there are a lot of reasons for it. John went through them. Two, obviously, Amy Klobuchar, who proved herself resilient and formidable on the campaign trail. And three, one who won't be picked, but would be a smart inside move. Governor, I think the best Democratic governor in the country, uh, Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island. And here, here's the reason for that. Voter-wise, her numbers aren't that good in Rhode Island. Nobody cares about Rhode Island. I, I get all that. But in the inside world that is terrified about the economy coming back with the huge fiscal load of this crisis. We're writing billion-dollar checks in Washington now like cotton candy because of the COVID-19 crisis. She's the best fiscal manager in the Democratic Party. Nobody thinks Joe Biden is a wizard at domestic policy. He needs governing help. And so the the 20,000 people who run the economy in America would be very reassured by her, and that would undercut Trump money. Corporate America would feel very, very reinforced by her, and she would be an excellent governing partner for him. Now, I think the final point I'll make is John's right. It's all about the chemistry and the relationship, not always the political calculation. But uh, I think I think Riamondo deserves a, a Ramundo. I keep mispronouncing her name. I'd learn how to pronounce it if I keep advocating <laughs> her. But I think she, on the governing side, there's an extremely strong case for her, and I hope they're at least giving her a look. I know her. And I totally respect her. And I think she is an enormously able person. 
Um, the politics within the party on that may be a little bit difficult. Uh, be, uh, Labor uh, right. is not a fan of hers because of the pension reforms that she has done, now education reforms in uh, Rhode Island. Maybe that's some of the same things that attract you to her, Murphy, are things totally. that would make it more difficult for her to uh, to be sold within the uh, uh, Democratic uh, uh, primary process. I- I'm sort of where uh, Heilman is. Um, and, you know, I think there are factors that have to be applied. One is they're actually vetting these candidates and those vets go very deep and they need to be paid attention to, um, uh, you know, uh, the Klobuchar staff stories. I, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know how deep they run, how much is true, how much is not true, but there's a lot of smoke there and they, that would come back and they need to be comfortable, uh, with that. Um, I don't know uh, on uh, on Harris how the uh, uh, re- regardless of the relationship with Bo and perhaps maybe because of it uh, there were some ouchy feelings about the mugging she mm-hmm. gave to Biden in the first debate uh, and I I don't know if those feelings have been uh, left uh, behind um, and you know the the um, Whitmer piece is is really interesting because she has some of the same appeals as Klobuchar regionally, and she is a governor, uh, and she's only been governor for fifteen months, but that's that's good and bad. Um, but you know, she is not someone with Washington experience. She's not someone with foreign policy experience. And my question back to you guys is, um, how much does the fact that Biden is older? and will be 78 and most likely will will never run again after this time uh, and the person who you pick has a, a better than normal chance of becoming president at some point does that factor in this at all i think it should because it makes the stakes higher i think it makes the media scrutiny a little rougher and people who have equity amongst the kind of elite media that that covers what this choice means will get a better better treatment and i think governors have an advantage too uh you know we're, we're see but yeah i think it, it ups the stakes at least for how the vp choice defines biden i don't think people really vote for vp but it helps them decide what they think of the nominee the vice presidential selection is one of those where there's really only one metric that matters and it's the right metric in terms of governing it's the right metric it happens to be also the right metric in terms of politics the filter, the people in my business measure one thing right off the bat. The moment that the pick is announced, does this person, is this person qualified to be president? Do they look like they're qualified to be president or are they qualified to be president? If you clear that bar, the media walks away. You don't have any problems. I agree with you, Murphy. I think that there's almost no evidence whatsoever that that, that, that running mates get you anything in terms of demographics or states or any of that stuff. All that stuff's been blown out of the water over the years. Yeah, they can hurt you more than help you, right. uh, you know. So it's a reflection of, of the candidate's judgment and his character, his, his, his character in this case. And so what the filter looks for is, is the person qualified? It's part of the reason why I think Stacey Abrams is, is, would be a problematic pick. You know, she's just on, on the, she's electrifying. She's compelling. I have, I have enormous respect for her. She's obviously a rock star in the Democratic Party, but her resume yeah, is not obviously qualified to be president. So the filter will, the media that is, will, will give that kind of pick way more scrutiny than a candidate like Kamala Harris, who, again, I'm not campaigning for, but a former attorney general of the state of California, United States Senator, ran for president, has been through 
a lot of this. No one's going to bat nine. And the same, you look at go back. You know, Joe Biden himself cleared the bar easily. Dick Cheney cleared the bar easily. Al Gore cleared the bar easily. Who didn't clear the bar easily? Dan Quayle, uh, obviously Sarah Palin. Right? When you don't clear the bar, uh, that becomes the nightmare for the candidate. And so, I, for me, the first thing if I was giving advice, and it's not my job to give advice, but I would always say to any of these people, the first thing you got to do is make sure you pick someone who is and is perceived to be qualified to be president from day one. And for an for an older candidate like Joe Biden, it becomes doubly important to make sure that you clear that bar. Yeah, the other argument on Harris, I mean, she is a um, she is a good performer. She is someone who seems contemporary. She is someone who uh, uh, would be a strong candidate for 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 women and those suburban women. Uh, she is someone who could carry the attack. She didn't run a good campaign. Yeah, this she is didn't, big. and and that is a uh, that 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 is something that I would look at. Um, you know, she didn't ever uh, have a coherent message, and she often stumbled over her own message. Now, it may be different if she's handed a message, if she has to prosecute a case that is basically for someone else. She may find it easier than prosecuting a case for herself. Maybe, but she was such a choppy candidate, and her greatest hit was slicing up Biden, you know, with what I think was kind of a cheap shot. And and so I I don't know. We've seen that pony run, and there, there are limits there beyond the vulnerabilities I talked about vis-a-vis Trump. I mean, I can't tell how many times that I've been with a candidate in this discussion, and they bring up a name that the media keeps harping on, that they're getting lobbied for, and, oh, that, that choice could make a lot of sense. And then there's a, then there's a pause, and some smartass, sometimes me, says, yeah, and we're going to need a food tester because it's clear the core loyalty will be to the future of their career. And I think that's a problem with Abrams. I think that's a problem with Kamala, and it could be a problem with any of the others. So you can never underestimate in the room how important that is that to get a team player not somebody who's an independent operator. And what's a very tough job because you go out and take fire for the president. And people who have their own campaign plan thinking Joe's only there for one year are, are, are going to be very difficult to manage in that way. And it's going to be a tough time to be POTUS. Biden played that role very, very well Perfectly, yeah. uh, for, for Obama. Um, look, I think at the end of the day, Heilman's right. This is the first and maybe the most important presidential appointment. Uh, and this is a you get judged in real time about the appointment. And so what, what is most important is, does Joe Biden feel comfortable with this person? And does he feel comfortable with this person as someone who is a partner and could be president of the United States? And can he make that straight-faced uh, case? That was a problem for John McCain in 2008. And so you don't want to make a purely political uh, judgment here. And we'll see. Meanwhile, Murphy... Uh, the natives are restless over in your tribe. <laughs> oh, boy, am I enjoying this because I've been with a few other ours, a fool on the hill for years. And now, shock, they're panicking. But there, this was a New York Times piece that I, I think Maggie Haberman, Jonathan Martin, maybe Alex Burns, a couple of their A-list political writers wrote about the growing panic over Trump within the Republican Party. And I have to admit, I, I read it with a horse laugh. I mean, Charlie Black, who's kind of the atomic clock of Republican conventional wisdom in D.C., is now worried. Well, I can tell you some of the smarter guys in the party were, were worried before that, and most of them were worried after we got wiped out in the midterms. This has not been a hard one to see coming, but now they panic. It's too late. 
you know, the die is pretty much cast. There's no shaking the brand. But, you know, when in doubt with national politics, you got to remember the Tony Soprano rule, which is everybody's afraid of the boss till they start going to jail. And then one day the boss's car blows up. Yeah. So the minute these guys think that the trouble Trump can create, particularly after primary deadlines are passing and most have. Um, or primary dates, and it becomes their own survival versus Trump, he should count on zero loyalty. Yeah, it's not love that binds these people. This yep. is not Ronald Reagan. It's not love that binds these folks to Trump. It's fear, uh, and it's fear of fear for their own survival. If he becomes an impediment to their survival, uh, look, out, uh, look out Donald Trump. Uh, but Heilman, the, the, the reason that uh, there is this panic uh, is uh, largely... Uh, around the Senate and this notion that he could he could take the whole mm-hmm. Senate down. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's notable to your point. I couldn't agree with you more about Charlie Black, uh, uh, Mike, but you could see the reason that the panic, the reason that story was timed when it was timed was two things, right? One, which we may talk more about going back to the question of just how horrific the moment was of Trump with the UV rays and the, and the, yes, tide, yes. And the, and the tide pods, right? So, that was obviously off the charts. One of the literally one of the craziest things I've ever heard in in my life from anybody, politician or non-politician, let alone a president of the United States. But that, in combination with the fundraising numbers that came in, and 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 people in the Republican Party not suddenly worried about Trump per se, but looking at the way in which Republicans are getting outraised by Democrats in these Senate races, and that's the thing mm-hmm. that caused that set off the panic button was like, holy shit, like. We, we look like we could be headed towards a clean sweep when Tom Tillis and, and Susan Collins and everybody is getting their clock cleaned by Democratic challengers that no one's heard ever heard of. And they're not just getting outraised by a little bit. They're getting outraised by multiples in this first quarter in fundraising. That's the thing that caused the panic button to get hit, again, in combination with perfect timing of the, of the Lysol moment. Well, just I can't tell you how many of my – Colleagues, I mean, I don't do really candidate races anymore, but my colleagues in the Republican Party, many of whom huddle around the radios like Radio Free Europe, listening to podcasts, including this one. And we're not shy about calling me and saying, oh, you're because I was talking and so was David about the Senate possibly being played a while back. Oh, you're crazy. You don't get it. You know, Trump's a phenomenon. And now they're all calling up. We can't raise any money. Why is Trump doing press conferences about, you know, drinking Clorox? And it's like, well, it's the same Trump. But I can tell you the the internal opinion driven, and you're right, John, heavily by the struggle they're having on the finance side has totally shifting. But they don't know what to do. You know, to be honest, they're almost fatalistic now. So, guys, we got uh, questions, many, many questions from smart listeners of, of Hacks on Tap who've sent their questions to HacksOnTap at Gmail. Dot com. So, Jeff, let's hit the buzzer there. It's so here is a question, uh, John Heilman from Lynn, who says, do you think Biden jumped the gun by saying that his running mate would be a woman? I am a never Trumper, former Republican, suburban woman. I would never have believed that I would become such a fan of Andrew Cuomo. I am impressed with his executive skills. In light of COVID, I think his best choice would be uh, would be a governor. Um, so, uh, and she says, by the way, parenthetically, Mike, I know you like Governor Whitmer, but shouldn't his choice be based on relationship and skills, not on gender? Do you think Biden could ever walk the choice of a woman if he made his case? Uh, walk back the choice of a woman if he made his case. Heilman, you take it first, and then Mike, you can 
uh, chime in since she raised your name? I, I do not think it was a mistake for the following reason. I think he was going to pick a woman uh, under any circumstance. I don't think there's any chance he was going to pick a man. I think it's the right thing for him to pick a woman because although we just talked about how running mates don't aren't why people don't vote for running mates, the reality is that you need to have a certain amount of enthusiasm uh, on your side. And in a race that's going to be this close, having Democrats enthusiastic about the ticket for, for Joe Biden, a guy who has not generated an enormous amount of enthusiasm in, in the whole of his run, despite the remarkable comeback that made him the nominee, he's going to have an enthusiasm issue. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm to fire Donald Trump, but Trump, but, 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 but Biden needed to have, needs to have Democrats whipped up. There's women, there's plenty of qualified women and, and they, and, and on the question of merit alone, it's a good, it's the right thing to do. And I also think that given that, and given that he was going to pick a woman, I think being able to get some mileage out of it was kind of a brilliant thing. It's like he managed to get a bunch of good publicity and basically dominate that final debate with Sanders by basically announcing something that was gonna, was already a done deal. I thought that was a kind of clever piece of media strategy to basically win the debate by, by saying, by saying out loud something that you knew privately you were going to do anyway. The Cuomo thing is really extraordinary, though, because, you know, he was sort of off on the side here in the Democratic discussion. It didn't really come up relative to the presidency and so on. And now he has become this uber sort of media star. The national, you know, cable networks cover his morning briefings. Uh, um, The White House says they watch his morning briefings. Um, You know, he's been he's been all over the place. It's really been interesting. To see the fact that this question comes up more than once, uh, and it does come up quite a bit, is is really interesting. I mean, nobody saw this Andrew Cuomo thing coming, which tell, shows you how much events can can scramble the the picture. Anyway, Murphy, totally. I, look, I think it's always a bad idea to limit your options preemptively. It was a good tactical move in that moment, but I think it was a mistake, though a small mistake, because he was probably going to, as John just said, wind up there anyway. That said, Cuomo is the last guy you want as VP. He's an independent operator. You know, he'd be very difficult. And there will be a second look. He has done a magnificent job in the middle of this COVID crisis in New York communicating it. But the second look will be a little unkind that he was late. You know, uh, Gavin Newsom out here uh, is the textbook on how to move fast and early, and Cuomo didn't do that. So he's full of political downside. You you are such a whore for Gavin You know, and I'm not even a Gavin fan, but i got to call it as I I see it. But my point about Cuomo is he is the thing of the moment, but he's not who you want as VP, so you don't want to be backing off and – and get in the middle of an identity politics crossfire in the Democratic Party. It could be very painful. All right. I'm taking my opportunity here to be really be a, one of the hacks on tap here. I get to even ask a question. This is a question coming from Mick. To what degree would Mike Bloomberg be able to bring Biden's campaign war chest up to Trump's level? And number two, to what degree would Mike Bloomberg be willing to bring Biden's campaign war chest up to Trump's level? It's actually a pretty good question, Mike. What do you think? It's a great one. Uh, and call me Kreskin here. I'll try to look into the mind of Bloomberg. You know, I in disclosure, I've worked for the Bloomberg guys, not on the presidential race, but in the past on issues. As has Heilman. Um, oh, right. And you're, you're on the network. I, I, I have it on pretty uh, well-sourced opinion here. One, that it would be incredibly helpful. I, I think a, a smart IE, because right now there are a lot of Democratic IEs, but they're all fighting, and it's it seems uh, a, a bit ridiculous. And they're fighting over donors, and there are vendor politics involved. I, I think the Bloomberg guys would do the job well, and they'd be smart about it, and they understand centrist suburban voters who are the fulcrum of this election. They're not caught up in some of the progressive uh 
magnetism that is that is pulling the party maybe away from understanding what they need to do to win. Uh, will he do it? I he has not decided. I believe that is the current situation, but I'm I'm sure it's on his mind. And as as the country moves forward and the politics kind of resume. He'll have a decision to make, and I think he sees Trump as an, uh, a real threat to the country. So I think I think he'll probably play a role. He already has. He gave the DNC a bunch of money helping to, you know, work on that Lunch money Delta. for him. But, you know, will he really churn up his financial muscle? We're going to have to wait and see. Heilman, you know him well. What do you think? Well, there, first of all, there's no question about Abel. I mean, you know, Abel, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's able would be able to not just bring up uh, Biden's campaign war chest. I mean, let's be clear. He can't bring up Biden's campaign war chest because of finance. But he can even right. the sides for I mean, sure. But he could even he could be at an independent expenditure committee. He could he could uh, he could not just even it up. He could surpass anything Trump could to, could uh, could raise and will raise by by a lot. Given Mike's uh, net worth of about fifty billion dollars, I mean, he could decide to write a, a couple billion dollar check. Amazing to say those words and 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 would not even really miss it. So that's able. Willing, I think, is it's interesting. Before, by a little piece of breaking news on this program, before in the period between when Bloomberg had decided not to run uh, and then decided to, and when he decided to get in late, in that period, we all know the reason he wasn't running was because he had decided there was no space for him. It turned out to be he was right about that, and he thought that because most of that vote that he had could have competed for was already locked in for Biden, so he sat out most of 2019. In that period. One of the things that happened was some of Mike's people who are not just well-funded, but very sophisticated on, on the digital side, went down to the Biden headquarters to say, hey, you guys, you know, you, you really are, you need some help. I mean, Mike really likes uh, Biden. And he had sent some of his emissaries down there to, to Wilmington to basically, sorry, to Philadelphia, to the headquarters to say, you know, you guys have a fundraising problem. You have a number of other problems. Most of them can be solved digitally. If you guys can come into the modern era on digital, we'd be happy to help you out with that and send some of our guys down to help your team. And the Biden people were not interested at that point in that help. And uh, and and so I, I raise it because uh, it is the case that, you know, that that is not just the sheer amount of money that Bloomberg could throw at this, but the particular kinds of expertise that they have in the digital realm is something that Biden really needs help with. And I suspect that although... Mike may not uh, put down as much money as as he could or as that Biden people would like him to. I think Bloomberg is going to be a very big player in the summer and the fall. And I think he's going to end up spending a a fair amount of money in the IE world, both on to help Biden and also to help affiliated Democratic Senate candidates. I think that the one thing that's real about Mike Bloomberg, we now know he spent a billion dollars to win American Samoa. But the thing that motivated him beyond <laughs> ego, beyond narcissism that motivates all these people, he really does think Trump is a menace. And, and I think he will, he will yeah. want to redeem his, his failed run by, be, by, by being able to have his last big public act in, in politics be a heroic one from, Democratic, from the Democratic point of view and playing a big role in the fall campaign. One of the interesting things, uh, apropos to what you said, to watch will be there, there are rumors that the uh, Bloomberg digital unit was going to move over to the Biden campaign. That would be good in one way in that they need to vastly upgrade their digital operation. It would be disquieting in another because it would mean that Bloomberg isn't planning to marshal a big independent effort uh, on his own. And, uh, you know, I would watch that closely. Look, he I think Bloomberg uh, has been uh, uh, extraordinary with the investments he's been willing to make. Uh, in the last uh, many years, not just around politics, but around 
uh, philanthropy, and he clearly is committed to this, uh, to to changing uh, this, the 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 person in the White House. But he didn't get treated in his own mind very well in uh, in the election, and I think there is a kind of uh, there is a bit of uh, uh, you know hurt hurt not hurt but you know irritation about well, sure. all of that they're, they're and human, hopefully you know, you know and, and 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 so time maybe time heals that uh, but we will see because the answer to your first question as Heilman said and as Mike said is there is no doubt Mike Bloomberg could be the great equalizer here or more than equalizer if he wanted to play that role I think it'll be a cause greater than his self-interest and my guess is he'll come around because he knows what counts and when he comes around the world shakes he has the resources all right here's our last mailbag question and remember if you have a mailbag question you can send them right to the hacks at hacks on tap at gmail.com and don't forget to rate us on iTunes all right from Eric this question is primarily for Axe. As a more moderate member of the left, <laughs> he's got you fooled, Eric, <laughs> uh, and counted among the dreaded, quote, establishment, how worried do you feel we should be about the slowly rising tide of populism in the Democratic Party that seems to sometimes mirror what happened in the Republican Party over the decades? There is something about this movement that can also feel to me, at least, like a Tea Party of the left. Uh, look, I think there's a lot of restiveness out there. Uh, and. And you can see exposed by this virus and the and and all of the economic dislocation that has been caused by this virus, all the inequity in terms of who's been impacted by uh, the virus most seriously. A lot of the things that uh, the left has been concerned about, inequality, uh, injustice and so on, have come to the fore here. I don't think that's going to go away. Uh, you know, I, I do think that um, uh, you can. You can absolutism is a is a really deadly uh, sentiment, uh, a really deadly uh, approach, and that and intolerance is a deadly approach. Look, I think there's impatience with uh, with the pace of democracy. There's impatience with people who are viewed as too compromising and so on. Uh, but I had an interesting conversation with Stacey Abrams about this, and I have with many other people who've been successful in government. And she said, I don't have the luxury uh, to make the uh, the perfect the enemy of progress. Uh, and in government, you, you have to, you know, if you're there to fight for people, you can't delay doing things until you get uh, the perfect compromise. And I worry about intolerance and I worry about absolutism and I worry about uh, an attitude uh, that uh, can be really destructive uh, in the long run, and and it could play a role in this campaign uh, if, in fact, uh, some of the people who support uh, candidates who were left of Biden uh, decide to take a walk on what probably is the most consequential election. Mm -hmm. uh, so we shall see. Uh, uh, but uh, but I also think that what may have been considered left uh, before all of this may seem uh, more mainstream. As we look at the aftermath and the, the carnage that this virus and the economic catastrophe has left. So that's something to watch as well. Hey, guys, time for the last call. Last call. And since Heilman mentioned it, and we really can't go through a whole show here without talking about it, let's roll just a little bit of tape 
not of the initial statement that the president's, you know, his his outrages of last week uh, in raising the whole Lysol and sunlight issue, but he got asked about it at the White House press conference yesterday. Let's let's hear what he had to say. Governor Larry Hogan specifically said they've seen a spike in people uh, using disinfectant after your comments last week. I know you said they were sarcastic. I, I can't imagine take- why. I can't imagine why. Yeah take any responsibility no i don't no i can't imagine i can't imagine that there you have it he takes no responsibility for what he said every state not every state uh, because i haven't polled every state but i know in iowa in illinois and other states uh, what hogan said was happening everywhere because what the president of the united states says actually means something and people took it seriously. He always there's become a running running joke the number of times he said I'm not a doctor, right? And and you know he stands up there and he says, well, I just I'm throwing these ideas out there. It's it, it, you know it, the reality is there are a lot of people who hear the president suggest things, whether it's hydro, whether it's the, the the hydroxychloroquine or this, and they don't listen to the president saying I'm not a doctor, don't pay attention to me. What they hear is they hear the president talking up something that's a miracle cure, and so of course they go. I, I can easily imagine why. That's what happens. People hear the president basically from the podium endorsing something is a good idea. Sometimes. He goes so far as with hydroxychloroquine is that literally say, I would take it. What do you have to lose? In this case, he said this dement, completely demented thing, but you knew it was going to be a genuine problem when you saw some of the companies like Lysol get out ahead of it and say, hey, you know, very quickly try to say, don't take our products to do this kind of thing. But I'll tell you the craziest thing about this, guys, is to me, the craziest thing was not just that he said it, as crazy as that was, but that the way that they tried to clean it up was by saying I was being sarcastic. Like as if somehow being sarcastic, obviously he wasn't being sarcastic, but as if the the, the, the way to try to, to, to put out the fire on this side was to say, here's the good explanation. I'm the president of the United States in the middle of a pandemic that's cost 50,000 lives. And what I was doing at the White House podium was talking about ultraviolet rays and disinfectant. And I was being sarcastic in the moment as if somehow that's exculpatory. It just <laughs> illustrates just how completely, totally his, his complete misunderstanding of what the nature of this job is. Like as if there's ever a moment in the middle of this that sarcasm would be the appropriate <laughs> tone for the president at this moment. They think that's like the positive way to spin their way out of it. It's nuts. Yeah, it was, I think it was the best he could do. And, and the big tell is he is a moron who thinks he's a genius because he was in a briefing and... Some guy said, this is a sponge, Mr. President, and this is Lysol, and you can clean a counter, and it'll kill the virus within a minute. And Trump said, you idiots, I've solved this thing. Just drink Lysol to work. Or you say UV light, we'll put it in the lung. You know, and then he goes out looking for approval to say, you know, I'm a medical genius, too. It's like the Kim Jong-un stuff, uh, if he's still alive, where in his official bio, he's a poet. He invented quantum physics. He writes musicals. And Trump's that same guy. It's so needy and so crazy. And I will be glad when it's over. Very quick last call for me, for all the panicking Republicans out there, deservedly. Look to the governors. You have Mike DeWine, a conservative Republican, Larry Hogan, a moderate governor, and Charlie uh, Baker, a more liberal Republican governor in Massachusetts. All three successful, rational, aren't afraid to govern with Republican principles. That's the way out of Trumpism. And for all your panic, there's a huge hint of what the party could be. And those three guys were doing a magnificent job during this crisis. Hyman, any last thoughts? Well, I just will say, not to be too serious about this, but to go back to the Huffin 
Clorox or Tidy Bowl or whatever, you know, I do think it yet again raises the question. And I got, I said this on television and then I got, obviously from the MAGA people got brutalized for it, but I will say it because I believe it's true. You know, it's one thing, these, these, these briefings that, that it's one thing that the, that, the, that, that David, your employer, my employer, other media companies decide to give the president all this free airtime for what are essentially campaign events that, that they are, where he propagates misinformation, where he propagates propaganda. That I think is problematic enough. And I know we've, you guys have talked about it on this podcast. I think we talked about it last time I was on the podcast, but it's a, but the reality is that what we saw empirically last week is that the president is putting people's lives directly at risk. When he says stuff like, like the stuff about disinfectant, and there are people calling poison control lines and, and mm-hmm. public health services and other hotlines and asking whether it's okay to take disinfectant. The president is literally endangering the lives of Americans from that podium. So I think it raises the question yet again, even more starkly and more vividly, should we really be letting the president have two hours or an hour and a half or whatever amount of time he takes on a given day, free airtime live? I, again, no mm-hmm. one's suggesting that we should not cover the president. I'm not suggesting that, at least. I think the president should be covered. I think these briefings yeah. should be covered. I think the only question is whether he should have live coverage or whether we should yeah, co- shoot them and decide what's newsworthy so, and put right, it on later. Real. I, I agree. Listen, just the last point on this, because we got to run. The reason that that clip struck me wasn't just how he deflected his, uh, you know, the, the issue, but when he was asked, do you take any responsibility, he said no. And to me, that goes to the heart of things as well. He does not take responsibility for uh, he doesn't take to re- doesn't take responsibility for their slow response, denies and doesn't take responsibility for the fact that for six weeks he told the American people this was not a problem when he should have been mobilizing uh, the, the public. He cannot. He, it goes back to the the uh, the scorpion and the frog. It's his nature. Sociopath. And he can't change Bottom it. Bottom line. He can't change it. All right, guys. Heilman, great to see you. Everybody stay healthy. Murphy, uh, you stay healthy as well down in your basement. <laughs> Glad I there. made the list. Heilman, yeah. good to see you too, pal. Axe, enjoy the desert. We'll be back <laughs> next week with Hacks on Tap. I love you, man. I, I want you to be healthy. 